Uh, Burton kids, you guys can head out to the back. Good to be with you guys. Before we kind of jump into Ecclesiastes, which is the book we're in, and uh, just want to say if you're new visiting first, thrilled that you're here, uh, thrilled that you get to sit and join in on God's work here as we gather as a church to hear and know and proclaim and enjoy the name and renown of Jesus Christ. That's why we exist. We believe that he was God, that he came and lived the life obediently to the Father. We could not live and he died a death for us. We could not die and paid a debt, ransomed us to himself. He owned us and we love that because he ascended to the Father and gifts us his spirit and allows us to walk in fullness of life uh, because that's tied to him and not tied to ourselves. And so uh, the gospel is liberating because it means we're free from being our own God. We're free to enjoy the true God, the living God, who frees us from sin, Satan, hell, and death, and ultimately to himself to live in glory. So uh, that's the message we love to preach. You're going to hear it every week. Uh, if there's a name you're going to hear more than any other name, it's Jesus, okay? So I always say that. Don't be surprised. Some of you guys, you're like, man, that's always so shocking to me. Those of you who are new, I'm like, well, you walked into a gathering of a church, and uh, so that shouldn't be a surprise that uh, Jesus is the name that you hear. So uh, before we kind of roll into Ecclesiastes 11, just wanted to uh, share with you guys a few things. One is... Um, on the front of Pastor Wilson, you, a lot of you guys know I, I sent that email out letting you know that one of the missionaries that we uh, support, one of the pastors that we support in Haiti who uh, has planted a number of churches is doing a tremendous gospel work for the kingdom. Uh, he was kind of in the path of Hurricane Irma. I talked to him last on Thursday. I don't know what's happened since then. Their internet's really bad, so uh, continue to pray for him. Uh, they were trying to get everybody into the shelter of a school that had a cement roof, um, and he's trying to gather up supplies and stuff. But you'll also remember on the encouraging front is uh, we took a special offering when he came and shared back in July, and uh, that special offering was able to actually provide over 200 children to go through VBS uh, in Haiti. Uh, so praise God. Uh, you can give thanks to Jesus for that. Um, that's good news. Uh, so the, he had over 200, 250, I think he said, children come through, fed all of them, uh, put on a great, uh, just organ, organized kind of vacation Bible school for them, taught them the explicit, clear gospel of grace. Uh, we know that God can give ears to hear as young as he pleases, and so uh, we pray that many would turn to faith in Jesus and know him as Savior. So uh, he's doing a great, fruitful work. Just want to encourage you knowing that above what we give him monthly, that was able to actually allow him to do something that he doesn't normally get to do all the time. Uh, so I thought you'd enjoy hearing about that. So keep praying for Pastor Wilson. The other thing I want to mention um, is the Harvey Relief Fund. We're going to be taking an offering today for that. Uh, we don't pass plate here. We give in the silver boxes in the back, but we have a black box on the back wall in particular for the Harvey Relief Fund. Um, so if you want to give to that, all of that's going to go, we said, towards our Acts 29 network in Houston. Uh, we have over 20 churches that were directly uh, impacted by Hurricane Harvey, and uh, some lost their homes, some lost their gathering spaces. Um, we have pastors that are without homes, uh, belongings, no cars. Um, they've been literally still out on the waters fishing for people, uh, doing rescue, relief, and recovery. So they're still kind of in the rescue phase and they'll head into the relief phase, which is what we want to help them with. Uh, so we want to give generously towards that end to help them in their efforts. And so um, if you guys would give above what you normally do towards that, that would be awesome. I'm also leaving online. We're leaving a online option. You'll see a, a Harvey Relief Fund that you can do through the end of this week. So if you want to give online, if you give online and you don't have time to give or you forgot your checkbook or whatever, um, you can give online that way too. If you happen to throw your check in another uh, box, that's okay. If you could just write a Harvey Relief Fund in the memo uh, so that we know it goes to that, that would be very much appreciated um, as we uh, just try to help 
those in need so that they can also be a great visible witness of the gospel and put it on display. That's ultimately our hope uh, is that we're now linking with local churches and people down there. There are tons of great organizations, great people you can give to. Uh, We feel particularly called and connected to those who God's already connected us with. We want to work through friendship, work through relationship uh, with people that think like us and and see the world like us. And so uh, we're thrilled to be able to participate in that way. So um, encouraged at your response, even from the email I sent and, uh, and what God will do through that. So uh, why don't we take a moment, let's pray for, again, yes, there, there is just, uh, there is catastrophe all over this place. I wanna always remind us when we see Irma, Harvey, earthquakes in Mexico, just to remind you this is nothing new, okay? And, and here's why this is nothing new, because Jesus always says every time you see disaster or calamity, it's opportunity. Okay, it's how we need to view it, right? We, we talked about Luke 13 last week a little bit, man. He says, hey, take some stock of your own soul, man. Let's do some honest examination, repent or perish, right? I mean, what's your line like to the God of the universe? Do you love him? Do you know him? Have you trusted fully in the work of Jesus for forgiveness of your sin? What, what's going on there? Because you never know when the next hurricane might come and hit New Jersey or we don't know when disaster might strike. That's actually much, that's the bulk of uh, Solomon's plea for us even uh, this morning uh, in God's providence. So um, let's take some stock of our souls for a moment and let's ask the Holy Spirit to graciously uh, give us sight and hearing where we need it as we hear from his word. So um, I love just giving us a moment of quiet. I know all of us flood into this room with thoughts, feelings, emotions, anxieties, pains, pangs, things that uh, have been bothering you, pestering you all week, whether it's family or work or relationship or uh, something. So let's lay those at his feet. Let's give them to our good king that commands us to hand over the things that burden us. And as you do that, might you ask him to be gracious to you this morning, maybe kind in a unique way, maybe finding joy in an unexpected place. That the author of history, the author of humanity might also be the author of your salvation and reveal the things to you that he must reveal to you for you to walk in fullness of life. Father, we come to you this morning admitting our humanity, admitting our weakness, admitting our inability, admitting our full dependency upon you and your great name and your great glory and your great power and your great work. So Father, would you be kind to us this morning and minister to our hearts in the precise ways that are necessary and meaningful and vital for our love of you, affections for you, growing in grace with you. Father, would you free men and women this morning from the sin that entangles from the sin that enslaves, and would you give them greater love for Jesus and greater love for your name and renown. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, Ecclesiastes chapter 11. There, I always say there's Bibles in the back if you want one. Thank you for grabbing those. We bought a bunch more, so uh, they're back. Thank you for taking those and using them. Ecclesiastes 7, here is what um, Solomon's going to do. He's basically now, uh, and if you missed the first 10 chapters, I'm sorry, you're gonna have to go listen to those. He's, he's landing the plane now. He is basically bringing the whole thing, and he's kind of finishing his philosophical plea. He's kind of done that rant, if I could use those words, right, where he's just been pleading with 
you, chase the God over the Son who sent Jesus Christ, his S-O-N Son, to come under the Son, S-U-N, to save us and rescue us to himself. And so he showed us how life is vanity, life is meaningless, life is purposeless if you chase yourself and don't chase him. Like you could get all the stuff that God gives, but if you don't get him, you've totally lost. So uh, we're learning how it's good news for us as Christians, as people to know what we can have and not just stuff, but something outside of stuff, which is the maker of all of it, uh, and that's God himself. And so the, the message of the gospel, we continue to say, if you can whittle it down, is that you get God himself. That's, that's the good news. It's not just that you get forgiveness of sin. It's not just that you get you know, a, a new life, even though those things are phenomenal. Not just that you get eternity with God. It's not that you just get mercy, just get grace. Those things are phenomenal, true things for you as a Christian. But the best news is that you absolutely get God, the God who wrote his own gospel. Like you actually own God. If I can be a little bit careful with those words, right? I mean, in heaven, that's what you have. That's what you enjoy. And so um, he's been showing us, man, you've got to chase him. Make that your pursuit. Make that your end. Make that the thing that drives your life, your affections, your job, your money, your vocations, your decisions, your family. The ways that you operate are driven by this because you never know when you'll be taken from this life. And we know that we come from someone and are headed to someone. So our life is meaningful, right? If you come from nowhere and head to nowhere, life is meaningless. And we covered all the philosophies, all the great uh, accusations that people will make against disaster and suffering. We, you can go back and listen to those. But here he's landing the plane with basically um, kind of a hard word. And he's basically summarizing it with his thesis at the beginning that um, spend your life, the minutes, the moments, the days you have here chasing after him. Because he's where fullness of life is found. So he's gonna, he's gonna keep pushing that all the way out. Now, I'm just warning you again. I, I, I love that he's not afraid to say a hard word. I'm so thankful that the scriptures aren't afraid to say a hard word because God's after your joy. And if I know everyone in this room, I don't need to know you to know you're after joy. Okay, so everybody wants joy. No one's in here going, I don't want joy. I don't want happiness. I don't want thrill. No, he knows we're all after that. And he knows he can only give it to us to the highest, fullest extent. Okay, so that's why we're after him. And so he's been showing, hey, you've heard my plea. And what he wrapped up in chapter 10 was the fool and the wise person. He's not necessarily talking about righteousness and unrighteousness, but folly and wisdom. And he says, hey, the fool has no plan. The fool has no intention of seeking God. The fool has no intentions of looking at his life honestly and assessing it in light of eternity. Yet the wise person, the wise man and the wise woman actually pursues the things of God, knows what he's asked of by him, and follows it with all of his might and strength. So here's what he says in verse 1 of chapter 11. He says this, continuing this wisdom theme. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days, give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on the earth. Okay, so, so in this day, um, these, this bread was more like crackers or wafers. You could, you could throw it out on the water, it would last for a long time before it would actually sink. And the whole idea that Solomon's getting at is, if your life is bound up in this God who made all things and you have him in the face of Jesus Christ, then steward your life in a way where things are lasting. Invest your life for eternity and not just the temporary. You're gonna cast your life upon waters in such a way to where you're gonna see it reverberate if it's according to the things that God has asked of you. It's this idea of stewardship, stewarding your way and investing your life. Now here's what's beautiful. Um, it gives God so much joy to give us his son. So as image bearers of God, we're just mimicking God and giving our own lives for his kingdom and his glory. 
right? So it's this idea of us living lives in such a way to where when we encounter the God of the universe and you're transformed by the power of the work of his Holy Spirit, right, through the work of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, you become a new creation and therefore you share in God's heart. Like you no longer share in your own loves. And I say this all the time. The Bible is so clear. It's not like there's no gray areas. It's when you encounter Jesus, when you're saved from wrath, when you're given an eternal home, when you're adopted into his family as his kid and he showers you with grace, you're not the same person. Like you're not a tweaked version of the old you. You're a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5. You walk new, you function new. That takes time, that's progressive, that's not overnight, but there's a trajectory in your heart that says, I'm after him, I'm fighting sin with the power of his Holy Spirit, I'm repenting, I'm moving forward. It's not perfection, it's just being faithful. So, so that, that happens in the Christian. Like that, that's clear, that's explicit. You can just read any text in the scriptures to see that. The New Testament will cover that, will show us that. But here what he's showing us is if that has happened, our lives are no longer self-centered, then they're God-centered, right? Um, when that happens, your, your vision in life is no longer just feeding my own family, but feeding other families. It's no longer just feeding my own soul, but feeding other souls. It's not just doing things that gratify my flesh, but will gratify God's heart. There's this switch that happens. So when you're satisfied now in the God over the sun, Solomon says, you give away your life under the sun. You exhaust your life for the things that God loves because you're the most free man and woman that exists because you've been bought by him and you're secured by him and all that was at stake eternally is satisfied for you. You're at peace. So when calamity comes, when disaster comes, you know you're locked away, secure on heaven's shores. So you invest your life here for what matters most. Um, and here's what's interesting in this idea of stewardship, how we give our lives away. Um, so many of us, and I've talked to some of you guys about this, you've been praying and praying and praying, hey, uh, for, for, you, for, for God to meet that need of somebody or share the gospel with that particular person. And isn't it ironic when most time God's going, um, that's you, bro. Right? Like, why do you keep asking me? Why do you keep calling me? I mean, I can't tell you how many times in my life I've asked God to use somebody else. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm asking you to send somebody who has, I don't know, more theological wisdom, who's uh, got more insight there, or has this or that. And God's going, no, I've put you there in your workplace. I've put you on that street. I've put you in that particular place. You're the answer to your prayer. Right? God's saying we view our lives through a lens of stewardship. We view our lives through ways, how can we use our lives for others? That's why he says in verse two on the screen, in case you forgot the last 10 chapters, let me say it again, you never know when disaster will strike. So invest it today, right? Like, don't wait. Like, yes, there's wisdom in storing up. There's wisdom in saving, providing for our families. I would never say that we don't do that. But if that's all you do at the expense of the kingdom, then he's saying, man, that's, that's not wise, so you save all of that stock up and then you perish a week from now and you can't use any of it, yet you could have used it to steward it for the kingdom. So there's this line he's walking where he's saying, if this is true, if this is real, if God over the Son exists, if he really owns you and bought you with the ransomed work of his son, Jesus Christ, man, what does your life look like in an investment standpoint? Does it look like crackers that get thrown on the water and they reverberate into the future or the temporary that you use right away? And he 
alarms us to this understanding of disaster because he's saying, you don't possess knowledge of tomorrow. He's been saying this over and over and over. Um, listen, the in, I've learned more and more as I grow in grace by God's help, the inevitability of life is a catalyst for my faithfulness today. Like, without fail. Like, the more I realize that I do not know tomorrow, that I have nothing deserved, nothing owed, that I have no idea what I'm gonna wake up to tomorrow. I could wake up to Jackson being obedient, loving life, wife making me coffee, fixing me a great breakfast. I could wake up to screaming, crying, phone calls, emails blowing up my inbox, neighbor across the street just so furious that my tree's in his yard. I could wake up to anything tomorrow, right? I have no control over that. So knowing I have no control over that, I want to focus on what he's asked me to do today and be faithful and live with all my might for that. I tell you all the time, one of my prayers every single morning, it hasn't changed in over three years, is God, give me just one single day of faithfulness. Just today. Just today. And all of my, my screw-ups the past month or two months as a pastor, you've forgiven those, you've cleansed those through the work of Jesus. Help me to be faithful now with what's ahead. Help me to look out my windshield, not my rearview mirror. Help me to stare at what you've laid before me right now. And I can't control next week. It's a lot of what Peter was sharing. I loved it last week. Would just keep rolling your anxieties into tomorrow. <laughs> just keep them rolling into glory, right? If you keep rolling them into tomorrow, then eventually they're going to be all bound up with Jesus in the end anyways. And we'll do away with them in fullness. But are you being faithful just in your present? Or are you so preoccupied with your future? Do you have the finish line in mind? So the wise person is intentional with his time, talents, and treasure. Look at verse 3. The fool in contrast, goes nowhere, doesn't do anything. If the clouds, verse three, are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you know, as you do not know the way the spirit comes in the bones of a womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. So Solomon now continues, and he's given you a hard word, you and me. Some of us are so caught up in making excuses for why we will not do things, will not be obedient to the things God has asked of us. Let sin and dwell. Do not take it seriously that we don't go anywhere. We don't not only go nowhere, we shrivel and die. We're the people who God's like, hey, uh, here's what I've asked of you. Here's how you lead to life. Here's how I've wired the universe. Here's how I've wired your family. Here's how I've wired marriage. Here's how I've wired you to steward yourself at work. And we say, no, we hear sermon after sermon. We sing song after song. We go, no, no, I hear all those things, but I don't know. It looks like it might be windy and a tree might fall, so I'm going to stay in my house. And God says, hey, plant these seeds, do this, sow, do this. I don't know. It looks like it's stormy outside. I don't think I'm going to waste my time planting seeds. Even though you're the God of the universe who made me and fashioned me, I'm not going to listen to what you say. I'm going to listen to what I say. He's saying the fool sits around and doesn't do anything that God has asked of him, does not believe it leads into fullness of life, does not take the things of God seriously, and therefore he goes nowhere. Solomon is saying to us, the only sure thing is there's no sure thing other than Jesus. The only sure thing is that there is no sure thing other than Jesus in your life. That's incredible. We have zero assurance of our job, myself included. 
We have zero assurance of our family life, even our marriage, zero. I'm not saying we can't be confident. I'm not saying we cannot do with everything we can with God's help, but we cannot control anything. We have no assurance outside of Jesus, who's totally sure. Same yesterday, today, and forever. What you have in him, what he has done for you in the cross and resurrection, and what he has asked of you now. You can be sure that that is going to lead you to life. You can be sure of what you will reap from those things. We can be sure that chasing him is for our good, that he's not to take from us, but to give generously for us. Um, you know, this, this can play out in life in a number of ways. And I don't mean this condescendingly. I just, I just mean this honestly. If, if you're someone who only waits for a perfect job for your whole life, you'll, never, you'll be unemployed your whole life, right? If you're someone who waits for and you desire to get married, you, you wait for the perfect spouse your entire life, you probably will never get married, right? Or you'll believe the life of the other perfect spouse until you get married, right? <laughs> um, if, if you are the person who waits for perfect timing, like for everything, you'll never go anywhere or do anything. He's saying we, we pursue what God has already asked of us. We chase him. We chase the things that he is asking of us. This is why here at Church at Bergen, if you've been here over the last couple of years, uh, we believe that God steers a moving ship. That this church is not just going to sit around. The church is put on offense, not defense. If you read the New Testament, the, the church goes into dark spaces. The church gets put on display. The church doesn't wait for others. It goes to them. It goes into places. That's why we were aggressively committed to, yes, Paramus is where we believe God's called us. We'll make plans. God will order our steps. We can't make him do anything, but we're going to at least walk and make plans and act and work and plead. Otherwise, you know what? We'll go nowhere. We'll do nothing, and we'll never see what God wants to do with us. So man, in your life, are you on the offense? Do you go into the spaces that God asks you? Or are you constantly playing defense with your shield up, right? But you see Jesus when he sends out, uh, I think the 72, he's like, hey, uh, head out there. And you're gonna be like sheep among wolves. He doesn't say, hey, stay hunkered down, put your fence up. But he says we go out wise as serpents, innocent as doves. This might mean for us, guys, some of us in our love for others, in our evangelism, um, we don't just wait for other people to strike up conversations. Um, some of us, man, we're, we're so wanting to go across the Atlantic, and God is calling you to go across your own street. You're like, no, 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 I want to do the real mission, right? I want to go across the Atlantic, unreached people groups, and you can't even walk 10 yards across your own street? That a time and place and season he has placed you. And I'm telling you with no boasting that my wife and I try as best we're able to be aggressively committed to this on 225 William Street. And my, it's all my wife. Convicts me every day. <laughs> Babe, they just moved in. We should bring a meal and go start a conversation. Let them know you're a pastor so they don't freak out when they see you with your Bible. And I mean, they have all those. She's so great at that. So we do that. So we go to neighboring people that just moved in, and we do what we can. Some slam the door in our face. Some don't want to talk. But, hey, we go. We press in. We move. Yesterday, going for a walk. Want to be on a walk, but neighbors came out. Jackson was one of the kids. Selfishly, like, I got I to gotta keep losing weight and just get, get, you know, fit. And I feel fat from Labor Day, and I just really want to keep walking, babe. She's like, no, we got to talk to these people. We love them. We got to engage with them. So is that understanding just even in your wheelhouse? Like, how do you view life? That you're a, you're a vessel of stewardship? Or you're just here for you? 
You're in your house just for you. So you can be cozy. And look, I get it. Bergen County, make your driveway long, fence high, pool deep, right? I mean, we, that's what we want. We don't want anyone talking to us. Oh, my goodness, the neighbors are coming home. Quick, get inside. Grab the kids. I mean, we, that's just how we function. It's just crazy. And you're all laughing because it's true. You're crazy. And so am I. But listen, God, isn't it beautiful when he breaks us out of just the standard, regular rhythms of the day, and all of a sudden your neighbors start going, what's, what's going on over there, 225? They want to chat with us. They want to engage with us. There's something going on there. Then it gravitates them towards the gospel. How are you practicing casting your bread upon the waters? It's a, it's a challenging question. Some of us also, maybe we need to create movement in other ways, create movement against the sin in your life, the residual effects of the fall that you just don't care about with the power of the Holy Spirit and the weapons of the gospel. Some of you think that magically if you just listen to sermons, sing enough songs, go to enough small groups, that magically that sin will vanish. Now, no doubt God uses those things as instruments, as agents, but at the end of the day, you have to do something. You have to make decisions you have to use the gospel of grace in some tangible ways to begin putting that sin to death and walking in the light of his word. So Solomon is saying, if you spend your entire life asking why, not being faithful what God has asked of you, you'll go nowhere. He alludes it to this idea of pregnancy. He goes, if, if you've been pregnant, you've been in that room where there's that sonogram, and, and it doesn't matter how many degrees that doctor has, he does not know how incredibly intricate it is in the ways that God is fashioning that baby. I mean, he can give you ideas. He can know from studies, oh, yeah, that's kind of how oxygen gets there and this and that. But he has no idea how DNA strands are forming and eyeballs and that they can, they can be in there and have oxygen. When they come out, they cough it up. And he has no idea how to explain that rationally. Oh, yeah, because A plus B equals C squared. Wait, you know, like, you, you can't do that. He's saying in the same way, there are things in our life that we're going to hit where we just have to say, God, you're good, you're glorious, you're infinite in wisdom. I'm not. Help me to trust you. Help me to understand that I cannot know everything, for you have made everything. You stand outside of time. There are times when, in the same way, we will need to say as God says, hey, go plant, go sow, go do this, where you're just going to need to lay yourself down and go, okay. Right? This is what you've asked of me, and you're good, and you're more committed to my joy than I am, and you love me more than I ever will, and you love my family more than I ever could. So this is how you're leading all respond in obedience. He's reminding us of this separation, right? Uh, Paul said, who has known the mind of the Lord? I think it was Augustine who said that we should actually create a doctrine that states the incomprehensibility of God. That that should be a doctrine for us. <laughs> that, that you can't fully know him, yet he's given you all that we need to know. He hasn't left you blind. That's what's beautiful. But Corinthians says he, we see dimly yet not fully clear, but we see enough. No one can argue, God, you haven't said enough. Or you haven't revealed enough. He's revealed enough. It's are you going to be faithful to walk in the enough so that you can trust God who knows all things and stands outside of time and space. And that he limits you in where he can as it pleases him. It reminds me of, um, of Moses, right, when he came to the burning bush. <laughs> And I don't know if you're familiar with that story. If you grew up in church, you're familiar with it. But what always struck me was that Moses looks at the bush and the wood is not burning. Like it's not rotting away. Like fire needs wood to burn or gas to burn, right? And, and God says to Moses, don't you notice there's, there's a distinction between you and me? 
Like, we ain't the same. Like, like, I don't need to be sustained. I am always sustaining. Like, every 10 to 30 seconds, you need to actually go for breath. Like, you don't decide, okay, heart, beat, 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 beat. You don't do that, right? You didn't decide to come out the birth canal. No one did. Oh, I think it's right now is good. No one did. No one said, hey, I think I'm going to form myself in my mother's womb. No one said it. God did it. We don't know any of that. God is in full authority. He, he makes everything, Solomon says. He creates every last dot and tittle. So we don't know all of his ways. So sometimes like Moses there, he goes, hey, look, I don't need wood to burn. He says, I am who I am, right? He says, this is the God you're speaking to. I'm not your buddy, I'm not like your earthly parents, I'm not like your father. God says, I'm not like that. We are totally dependent creatures. He's not dependent on anything. He does not learn a reality that's outside of himself. He never learns anything. And that should comfort us. But what Solomon's doing is reminding us of the separation. So he's saying, are the things that God is calling you into, calling you to plant, calling you to sow, calling you to be obedient to, that you need courage in? Remember your place and remember his place. Remember that God is with you, right? I mean, that's why I love the promise in Matthew 28, man. Go make disciples. This ridiculous mission of all nations, man. You're going to go to the ends of the earth. And what's the undergirding promise that sustains you in the mission of making disciples? I'm going to never leave you. I'm going to be with you always. I remember when I was in middle school and, and I was coming out of private school. So I went to Christian school until middle school. My parents threw me in, in middle school, public school. And I was like, whoa, this is quite a different thing. And, right? and so I'm like trying to learn how to like make friends and walk and I, I can wear whatever I want. I, I can't believe this. So I, I'm wearing jeans and I'm, you know, and I'm like, this is amazing. And I'm meeting people and I'm trying to figure out how to operate and I'm feeling very, very intimidated and, and, and kind of like quiet, which is not me, by the way. I'm like super extroverted. Some of you guys know that. You run from here when I come up to you to talk to you. But, but it's, I could overwhelm you, but I'm very extroverted. And I remember there was this guy, Mitch Edwards. And of course you know, I'm, I've always been this height. So I am all torso, no legs. I, I, that's always been me. And I've just had a problem with growing. And so because I couldn't get height, uh, Mitch Edwards, who was the tallest kid in our class, uh, befriended me. I'm like, this is incredible. And I remember there was nothing better than walking with Mitch Edwards down the hallway. And I would just walk with him. And he was saying hi to everybody. I felt so secure. I felt so cool. I felt so, man, I say anything to anybody. Hey, bro, you got beef? I, I got Mitch. Like, I didn't care. I would just say anything to anybody because I've got Mitch with me. And I'm telling you, man, this is the idea, though. I mean, God's saying, do you understand who's with you? Look, when you walk to your neighbor's house, you're afraid of what they're going to say? You're afraid if they're going to like you or what they're going to think of your words. Or when you're at work, you feel like speaking up and saying some truth of the gospel. You're, you're afraid of that? When you've got the God who made everything, Solomon reminds us, at your side. Who's going to come back with a sword on a horse, not a donkey. And he's going to make all things right. He's going to do away with all wickedness. He's going to banish it forever. He's going to cast every right, just thing that did not gladly submit to his rule and reign through the work of Jesus, away from him for eternity, and will welcome in all of his kids that did. Don't you want to be his kid? And if you are his kid, live like you're his kid now. What encouragement is that for us? That he is with us, right? I mean, just read Romans 8 sometime. 
What shall separate us? What can come against you? Famine, sword, nakedness? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Is it not him who justifies? Is it not him who bought you? And I need that a lot. In pastoral ministry, I need that a lot. There are a lot of fears I have. There are a lot of places and spaces I'm not courageous. This might not be hard for me, but other things are very hard for me. And we need help in that way. That's why in verse 6, he uses that farming analogy, the last text up there. He just says, hey, plant a lot of crops and see which one takes root. The Christian life isn't stagnant. It's for It's movement. The Christian life is not standing still. You are always pressing, pushing, toiling, working. Like this is Philippians, straining towards Christ. You never stopped in this. This is why the New Testament uses wartime language, right? It tells us to get up and move. Because here's the, here's the lie we'll all buy. Especially if you've grown up in uh, just the Christian faith, strong grace gospel, you'll say, okay, well, 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 that's a work then. I shouldn't have to do anything because Jesus does all of that and that's a work that I'm adding to his cross then. So I don't want to really fight my sin. And Well, yes, Jesus works in you in fighting your sin through the power of his spirit. Yes, yes, salvation is solely God, but sanctification is God and you. And this is discipleship, right? So many of us are trained that, that the Christian life is a life of decision, not a life of discipleship. Right, so I just make a decision and kind of live however I want. No, you then you make a decision, you trust in Jesus, you love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Then you get Ephesians 6, you put on your armor and you go to war. Because the regenerated heart, regenerated mind responds that way because the grace is so scandalous and awesome that you can't possibly sit in the way you were before and you have to fight against what dwells inside of you because you hate it. And so you just strive with the Holy Spirit's power and the weapons of the gospel, the community of faith, to put that sin to death. Solomon has shown us, man, okay, if this is true, we're ending the memoir. How are you living? Are you taking it seriously? Are you pushing forward or are you stagnant? I want to get practical for, for one minute because Solomon is showing us, and the entire Bible will show you this, um, there's no such thing as passivity in the Christian life in the name of grace. Romans 6 clearly rolls that out. Just, just practically, just real quick. Um, if the pursuit of God is our goal and the pursuit of Jesus is our goal, um, how do we know what he's asked of us then? How do we grow in affections? How do we grow in understandings? Well, there's, just listen, it's gonna sound like repeat. We need to be reminded over and over and over. There are three basic historical Christian disciplines that will never change, okay? These are the, the main things, the bucket list. These are in your, your, your wheelhouse, and then other things flow out of that. But in that wheelhouse is, uh, number one, the Bible. <laughs> like, you can either guess about God, make up your own God, or you can submit to how God, the living God, has revealed himself and get to know him right? This happens through prayer, right? Prayer is not just to get stuff from him. It's to get to know him. It's to grow in communion with him. Community is a huge one. God has saved you not just to himself, but to a people, other saints, right? So we get around people that have the same desire of pursuing him, knowing him, making much of him, that's not at the expense of non-Christians. That's not at the expense of the struggler. But that's as, hey, get in your bucket people who will help grow you in grace. So then you can pour out to grow those other people in grace. If you go to each of those in silos, you're in a bad spot. Now, 
those central things. Here's what I'm encouraging, because I, I talk to a lot of you guys about this. Um, they're going to look different for each of us based on life stage and season, guys. I mean, I remember when I was in college, I mean, nighttime was just a great time for me to read, study. When God grabbed a hold of my life, I had time. I was not married. I was just doing schoolwork. I didn't have the demands and responsibilities I have now. So I would study at night. I would read at night. I was not a morning person. Then I meet Kristen, my wife. I get married, and I learned very early on I'm going to bed with her, and we're going to talk. Okay, so those are the two things that are happening. So night owl, can't do it anymore. i got to love my wife, cherish my wife, so I know that we're going to go to bed at a reasonable hour, and then we're going to chat. Even though we've had seven hours of silence on the couch, we didn't chat. Sorry, just kidding. I love her. She would laugh too. She would laugh too. I asked her. I checked. Okay? I know, because you always come up to me after the sermon. Okay? So, so, so here's the deal. Um, that changed, and that moved to morning. And morning was a sweet time of meditation and growing in grace and prayer very early. And then she got a teaching job, and she was up super early, so then that changed to the afternoon. And then we had Jackson, and now no time works. Right, like we don't have, you know if your mom's, but now she does that when Jackson's asleep, when he's napping, that's the only thing she'll do to commend her even if she has not slept or has not taken a nap, she will prioritize that before anything because the kid is down, there's silence in the house, she can meditate, I have a different rhythm now when I get up before him, after I come back home from working out and there's this, your, your life and seasons change. Don't get this thing where like it's this pragmatic thing where I have to do it here, 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 and here. Listen, um, Pastor McKinney reads Jonathan Edwards at five in the morning. You know what I'm doing at five in the morning? Sleeping. I'm not up. That's how God's wired him. I mean, seriously, I'll hear you guys talk to us about these different things and do it the way God has wired you, the way he's given your life season and stage. Don't forsake it at all, but find the way that it works and make time and make discipline with the help of the Spirit. And then outside of those, there might be things that you need to keep asking yourself in the ways that God's wired you. What grows your love for him? What helps you hear him? And that's okay. Never get outside of those main things, which is why we love the gathering. But do you love going and just seeing his glory in creation? Is there a song that is rich in theology that you love to play, that you listen to? I've said all the time, in Christ alone, I don't know why. That's the song that ministers to my heart in particular. We had it made. It's on our wall in our dining room. You can see the whole song because I just have to see it because there's something about that that just ministers to me. Um, and when I was early on in ministry, I experienced a lot of death early on and doing funerals. That was a wake-up call for me. So I actually started going to graveyards periodically, and there was something about seeing tombstones that awakened me to the brevity of life and the awareness of life and death. I'm not telling everybody to go to the graveyard to put on that song. I'm just saying, <laughs> pray, think, how has God wired you outside of those main things? that you can love him more and pursue him more. The other thing I would say practically, I know it's practical, but I think we need this. Get around people who excel where you're spiritually weak. And if you're saying you're not spiritually weak anywhere, that's where you're weak. <laughs> you're pride. I mean, you're arrogant. I mean, get around people who excel there. That's why, honestly, I try as best as I'm able to get to corporate prayer every month. You want to know Why? Not because I have a vital prayer life that's off the charts. It's because, man, I know how much that ministers to me and how much I grow in grace being there with the people of God, how much I learn to pray by hearing other people pray, how I think a lot of times more intellectually about it than actually walking in it. 
So I really need help in that area. That, that's an area where I'm, I'm weaker, so I want to get there and make that a priority as best as I'm able so I can grow there. Um, find people like that. Now, now here's the other piece you've got to ask. What things are decreasing the, your pursuit of him? What's sabotaging your pursuit of Jesus. Um, you have to consider this, because listen, I would bet most of the stuff that, that robs you in your life is not this outright scandalous stuff. It's not this morally just wicked stuff, it's this, this neutral stuff. It's the gray areas. Because I'm not gonna tell you TVs of the devil or hobbies are wrong, or, but I'm gonna tell you, you are intrinsically bent to do wickedness. And we'll take all of God's good gifts and make them ultimate things right? That's the sin of the universe, right? Make good things, ultimate things, put it above God. He's not the priority. He's not God. These other things become God. We pervert them, and that's how sin enslaves and ensues our life. So you've got to ask yourself, what are the things in you that you know continue to sabotage your relationship with Jesus Christ and put them to death? Romans 6 is going to say, a life and a mind set on the flesh leads to death. A mind and life set on the spirit leads to life. So with all that in mind, look at verse seven. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. He says, while you're given life, given breath, while you're given opportunity, and you're gonna have good days where you feel the sun on your face, the marriage is working great, the kids are obedient, everything's clicking like you want. He says, enjoy those as graces and gifts from God. But there are gonna be times, inevitably, when darkness is gonna come in, where you're gonna need to be sustained by the God of the sun who you continue to chase. You gotta dig your well deep. So your, your, your theology is not on fleeting happiness and emotions. It's dug deep into the suffering of Christ where you go, I don't just want him. I want to become like him, which is the gospel, right, where we don't just want Jesus' benefits. We want him. We want more of his nature. We want more of his thoughts, more of his holiness, more of his endurance, more of his perseverance. We want all of those things. So we want to become like him. So if suffering and hardship and trial lean me closer headlong into him than bring that into my life. This is Philippians 3.11. I want to share in the sufferings of Christ. Nobody wants to talk about that. So he says, hey, let me remind you of that. He's foreshadowing the New Testament. Darkness is going to come, and the good days are going to come too. And you revel in the good days and dig your well deep as you pursue and chase Jesus for the dark days. And this is the difference. This is where, man, when people learn that life is a life of discipleship as a Christian and not just a life of decision, it keeps people, when hardship happens, from being disillusioned with him to being devoted to him. And I see that dovetail all the time when hardship hits. So he says, remember that. Verse 9, rejoice, O young man, in your youth. And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart, in the sight of your eyes. But now that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. So Solomon's going, don't miss opportunity in this life to become all that Christ wants you to become. And the desires he puts in your heart. They do that, chase that. And here's what he's really getting at in here is, is chasing him now, the urgency. And I love it. He says, oh, young man. So he's talking to somebody who's young. And I'm always going to say, youth is 40 and below. 
okay? It's not 20 and below. And we're all heeding this charge, but he's explicitly saying, hey, there's something about youthfulness. We've got a lot of youth in the room, a lot of young people. I'm in that camp. I keep saying that, right, where he says, deal with your stuff now before it's going to cost you a lot more later. Like, start digging your well now. Start growing your theology now. Start walking in holiness now with the power of the cross of Christ and his indwelled Holy Spirit. Don't play around with sin. Don't play games. Get serious now. You don't know when disaster is going to strike. Cast your bread on the waters. Cast your life in such a way to where you invest in eternity now. Do not wait till you're 50 or 60 or 70. You might outreach that age. We all think the Holy Spirit's at our bidding. I can call on him whenever I want. The Holy Spirit's just waiting for me to get serious. No, this might be the only time he's even awake awakening you even right now in this moment to an inkling of desire. That is how serious this is. Like you in the gathering today might be God's providential way of saying, hey, wake up, smell the roses, life is serious, disaster could come at any moment, sin is serious, it will kill, destroy, rot your soul, flee that, chase me, enjoy me, and be secure in me. He's telling us, remove it now, remove vexation now. Deal with your junk now. That's what he's saying. Get serious now. Take the Lord seriously now. Listen, if you're a Christian, I know that you want to be more bold than you are. You want to be more holy than you are. That's in you. But listen, few will strive for those things. We'll live our whole life going, yeah, I want that. But few of us will actually create movement will actually strive for them. Many want Jesus at his fire insurance, right? But they don't want to become like him. They don't want the road of sanctification. They don't want the purifying work of the Holy Spirit. And some of it's just bad character of God. You believe that he's out to take from you, not give to you. But he's a God that every time he lays before you a command, it's never to take, it's always to give more generously than before. Which is why Solomon turned the corner and got serious. Don't run from him. Press into him. Remove vexation in your heart while there's still time because there's a day of judgment coming. There's a day when common graces of life, the sun that you enjoy, the good days, the laughter, outside of him will all be gone for you if you do not trust in his name and love him with your whole heart. Chase Jesus now. That's why I love that the scriptures will say our life is saved by the fruit and works of Jesus, not by our own fruit and works. But that compels us to do good works and to pursue the holy life that he has asked of us. Be holy like I am holy. You know what one of the hardest things as a pastor is? One of the hardest things as a pastor is that is that you know so much and you can't do anything. All I can do is lay it before you, plead, pray, and submit to God. Like, I, I know that there is a large majority that is being destroyed by lust. And I can't do anything. There, there is people in this room who are enslaved to pride and arrogance. And I can't do anything other than plead, pray, pray.
preach, share, just lay it out and say, here it is. There's some, your marriage is on fire and you don't care at all. And all I can say is, here it is. I can't do anything. I mean, I literally want to, for some of you, I want to jump inside your body. Like, I want to just jump inside your body. Go, man, and like Solomon, going, man, remove it now. Chase him now. Put that sin to death now through the power of his gospel and Holy Spirit. May walk in freedom now. You can. You can absolutely choose Christ today. Some of us are destroyed by things that haunt us, enslaved by the past. I'm going, Christ freed you from that past. Like you have to walk in the guilt and shame of your past. Like you, you enjoy all of Christ now. That's the point of the gospel. Some of you are like, man, I just, I don't need other faithful saints around me. I don't need the community. I love coming in here solo. I'll leave. I don't need other people in my business. And I'm going, yes, you do. <laughs> you need lots of people in your business. Lots. <laughs> For the glory of God and good of your soul. This is why, friends, our pursuit of God, Solomon's shown it, it's violent. Now, those aren't only words that accompany Christianity, right? Violent. It's like Colossians 3 is going to say, hey, put to death what's earthly in you. Murder it. The only time you get a green light as a Christian to kill when it comes to your sin. In other words, the new nature loves putting to death the residual effects of the fall that enslave our mortal bodies. The, the Christian is just engaged in putting to death wickedness. The new nature is serious about putting to death the residual effects of the fallen ambitions and, and, and longings that are outside of Christ, seen and unseen. That's what happens when you become a Christian. All of a sudden, right, that's why if you read Colossians 3, great text, shows you who you are, where you're seated, what he's done for you, and then he says, hey, now you aggressively put all these things to death and then you put on, you clothe yourself with all these other things. Because he says it in a way that it's assumed. Like, yes, this is you. This is the new man. This is the new woman. So we start doing those things. So friends, here, here's the problem. You, so we'll, we'll hear this. We'll, we'll hear this charge from Solomon that, that God of the Son is good, that man, you better get serious about him now, that you better do away with all the things, get your lines figured out, know who he is, know what he's asked of you, know that judgment is coming, that eternity is long, that life is short, that death is imminent. Let's make all those things real. And then he's gonna say, okay, if that's true, now let's move and take our life seriously. Which is why he says remove vexation. And here's the problem. We'll hear that, a lot of us, and we'll think that sin is a little kitten, not an apex predator, right? It's not out to kill, destroy. It's not crouching at your door. It's not First Peter 5 looking to devour you. It's this little pet that you can train and keep at bay. Here's why you want to keep it at bay. You want to keep it at bay so when you get angry, when you get frustrated, when you get bitter, when you think you're owed something from someone, they don't give it to you, you want to run to that sin for comfort and gratification, not the God of the universe for comfort and gratification. So you just keep it around. Just so it's there. And here's the thing, because you don't want it to die, you just want to train it. 
But the Christian says, I'm going to strike it again and again and again and again. I'm going to declare an all-out assault on the sin in my mortal body because I know it's not a little kitten that can like just be trained and roll over and play dead and look at me and meow cute. I want to do this because it could literally devour me. This sin wants to destroy me. It wants to lure me away from the goodness of God, the glory of Christ. It wants to taint my view. It wants me to think that the things of this world are beautiful and he is not. It wants me to reverse my entire understanding of the gospel of grace and the view of God who dwells in infinite perfection. It wants to pervert my mind, pervert my soul, pervert my heart. It is, it is insatiably wanting to do that. Now, until you realize that, until you realize sin is that damning and that serious, you're gonna see your whole life on the couch not get what Solomon's saying and treat sin like it's a little kitten that you pet next to you on the couch and then all of a sudden it jumps up and bites you and you're shocked by it. How did it do that? I don't know. It was a lion with a mouth the size of your body that wanted to eat you. That's the verbiage that it gives us and so praise God. Solomon gives us a good word here. He says don't just starve it. Starve it to death. What in your life are you treating like it's your pet? Whether it's gluttony, whether it's greed, whether it's pride, whether it's lust, whether it's insecurity, whether it's, I don't know what it is. We're just treating it like a pet. Not wanting to put it to death, just wanting to train it, control it, manage it. Forgetting that the right circumstance at the right time will always be good fodder for that thing to kill you. Now, guys, what's our primary hope for this? Jesus. I mean, I'm not talking about willing it out, just trying to be more moral and look more righteous. I'm talking about a real risen Christ, Jesus, his cross and resurrection. He killed sin for us. Killed it, literally. You gotta get that in your bank. You gotta dig that down in your well. That in his death, your sin died too. In the life that was raised with Christ, your life was raised to newness of life with him. That, that that happened. And in that great gospel work, right, he provides his Holy Spirit to fight that sin and put it to death. Listen, it's only until that you realize in Christ you are absolutely dead to sin that you can then stop forsaking your sin. You understand that? Like it's only until you realize the great theology of his atonement, of his reconciliation, of his imputation, of the things that he does for you in the cross of Christ where he literally took all of my sin and put it farther than six feet under, put it infinitely under, right? Put the coffin on it, stands on it, gloating in Christ. So even when you stumble and fall, he celebrates his son in you. You've got all of this gladness in God where he says, hey, that's put away with. Now you no longer simply try to forsake your sin. That's what most of us do. We don't believe we're dead to sin because the non-Christian has to say yes to their sin. The Christian can always say no to their sin. Now, here's the thing. You get to 1 Corinthians. There's that verse that everybody loves to use. He's not gonna put something in your life that you can't handle and you can't bear. Always provide a way out. So here's how we interpret that. Um, some of us have the ability to handle that. Some of us don't. So God's not gonna put you in that. Ooh, I shouldn't put Mike there. That's really bad. That, let's protect him. Don't put Sarah there. Don't. No, you have to rewire your thinking to the whole counsel of God to where you actually read that verse as God says, 
saying. There is absolutely zero situation, zero temptation that you can't say no to. You can say yes to every single one. You can choose Christ in every single situation you're in because you've been bought by him, indwelled by him, and empowered by him. Don't for a minute think if you're in the gospel, if you've been in Christ, if you've been seated in the heavenly realms, that somehow there's a situation upon you where God's not giving you the ability to say, no, I'm putting that to death. I'm gonna mortify that sin with the power of the spirit, weapons of the gospel, prayer, community, faith, sword, everything. I'm gonna walk in freedom. I'm gonna keep walking in freedom. So many of us live like we're, we're handicapped in the gospel and he gave you half of his son and kind of put your death, your sins to death kind of halfway. He didn't bury him all the way down. You got to believe this and walk in it. This is not blind faith. This is not just think positively. This is a reality that happened for you. So all I can do is just plead with you brothers and sisters to enjoy him in this way. Enjoy who you are in Christ today. And let's walk in this in grace. There is no situation, no scenario that you can't get out of by the weapons of grace and your regenerated Holy Spirit. And if you're not a Christian, if sin enslaves you to a degree where you're probably doing some good self-examination right now, going, man, I don't know. I, I, this is kind of making me wonder if I really have the Spirit, if I even really want him. Or, man, let's deal with your junk now. Listen to Solomon. Repent of your sin. Turn to Christ. Embrace him as Savior, Lord, King, Redeemer. Let him wipe away your tab. And then chase him in holiness. Let's ask God for help in this. Father, we need help. We are broken. We are sinful, God. We cannot do this on our own. We're thankful that, that God, the word of truth you say is like a mirror that, that perfects us, that it reveals things, it exposes things. God, would your word be a mirror to us right now? Would we see ourselves the way that you see ourselves? Would you help us wherever this truth needs to fall in our hearts to walk in glad submission to you? Would you free us from the enslavement? Would you remind us of who we are in Jesus Christ? Would you bring some to true repentance and faith in your son this morning? Would you show them how good you are? Would you help us to live lives that steward them in ways that last, that have internal investment? Would you help us to be good stewards of grace? For those who are in dark seasons, would you help us to trust you? For we can't know your full mind and you've made all things. God, I pray this week that more sin would be put to death as a result of your word. I pray this week more sin would be eradicated from our minds and hearts and souls. Not because we're great, but because Christ took sin and did away with it in fullness. For the glory of your name and renown. And as we enjoy the supper, that we would be nourished by the benefits of your shed blood and broken body that did this for us. That kills our shame and regret and brokenness and makes us whole, that puts away the sin that enslaved and damned us to hell, that puts away the wrath of God that stood over us and took it itself. Father, would we be nourished by remembering this as saints? In Jesus' name, amen.